Daniel chapter 7, if you'll turn there. Daniel chapter 7. Good time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones. We want to be free from distractions. There's a lot we're going to go over this morning, and uh, I think you're going to be tremendously blessed as we continue with the study of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7, and before we get into our study, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, Lord, speak to our hearts uh, these things that we're going to be looking at. And we don't look at prophecy just to, for an academic exercise, um, but Lord, to to be touched, um, for you to be revealed to us in a greater way, to bring comfort to us. And Lord, I pray that that would happen. We have a blessed hope that is before us. We have a kingdom that's going to be established for all eternity that we get to be a part of. And Lord, everything that we see, we know that it's all leading somewhere. It's all leading to um, a kingdom that will come, that we're a part of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning our hearts would be stirred. Lord, that our ears would be open to your word. And Lord, that we would leave this place just in awe that we get the privilege of reading your word and what is before us. I want to pray for all the graduates, Lord, whether they graduated from the university or from the community college or early college, whether they graduated from high school, that, Lord, we pray for our young people, that they would understand that you have such a glorious, wonderful plan for them as they walk with you, they learn of you, continue to trust you in their lives. We know that Babylon's trying to, the Babylon today is trying to take them away captive. So much coming against them and causing confusion. And I pray that you would be a covering for them, keep them close to you, Lord, that you would just help them to be established in you in every way in decisions that are made. Help us as parents, grandparents, to minister to our children. And Lord, I thank you that we have your word to guide them and direct them and us as well in everything, in every area of their lives. So Lord, we give you this time to study of your word right now. Help us be attentive. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we enter into this next section of Daniel, as most of you know, the first six chapters were a narrative. That is, they were a record of the biographical history of Daniel from the time that he was taken off into captivity. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar is defeating the Egyptians down in the Sinai. He gets word that his father has died and he is the next king of Babylon. He has to secure the throne very quickly so on his way back he stops in Jerusalem and he takes the choice men the young man of Judah away captive and he takes some of the the vessels and the treasuries of the of the Lord's house away as well to Babylon and we know that was the first uh, deportation of captives taken to Babylon there would be three total uh, coming of Babylon into Jerusalem. Uh, The first one, Daniel and his companions that we read about in chapter 1. We know that Daniel, just a teenager at that time, 605 B.C., he's only about 
15 years of age. He's taken away to serve as a eunuch in the affairs of Babylon and to serve Nebuchadnezzar directly, never to see his homeland ever again. We know that the second wave would come later in 597 B.C. when Ezekiel was taken off into captivity, and he's prophesying at that time. And then the third and final assault on Jerusalem would come in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. But in 605 B.C., in that first coming of Nebuchadnezzar, that would begin the 70 years of captivity that would be spoken of Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah that were you know, on the scene as well. Isaiah before Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaking that the captivity would be 70 years. But as we read about the ministry of Daniel there in the Babylonian Empire under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, up to the night he would continue for the whole 70 years until Babylon fell, chapter 5. He, he interpreted the handwriting on the wall for King Belshazzar and would continue to serve even as the Medes and the Persians took over the world power under Darius. And, of course, we saw last week that Daniel was cast into the den of lions during that time. So this record of Daniel's faithfulness to the Lord, he would find favor with the Lord, it's been very impactful to many of you. You've expressed that, and it has to me as well. And as we have seen, his godly Daniel's integrity, his honesty, his character, very practical, very rich in these first six chapters of Daniel. But also, we did see some aspect of prophecy that we looked at. Matter of fact, chapter 2 is Daniel would give the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the interpretation of the dream. Chapter 2 of Daniel is called the very foundation of Bible prophecy. Uh, he would tell of the Gentile nations that were on the scene from the time that he's prophesying in the 6th century B.C. up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. He would talk about those Gentile nations coming on the scene. And as we looked at that, it's very important for us to understand that that foundational prophecy given to us as, as well as the rest of the book of Daniel because the, all the prophecies in the scripture is going to fit into the timeline and into what Daniel's speaking about as Daniel's called the forerunner to Bible prophecy, the foundation of Bible prophecy, chapter 2 being that, and the rest of these prophecies that we're going to be looking at. Now keep in mind that when Daniel's writing, as I mentioned, in the 6th century B.C., when in chapter 2 he would give that, that interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, the image of a man made of different metals, that Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So everything that Daniel was prophesying was yet future. And then you're going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire that we read about at the end of chapter 5. And Daniel continued to minister as we went into chapter 6. So he would see that prophecy be fulfilled. Now, when you read the book of Isaiah, here's the thing about when you read prophecy in the Old Testament, particularly that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the minor prophets, that when they gave prophecy, oftentimes they would give a near fulfillment, that is the prophecy would be fulfilled not long after the prophecy was given. We're in the year 2022, and we can look back 
at Daniel chapter 2, and we know that much of that prophecy has been fulfilled. The head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the Grecian Empire, the uh, belly of brass, and then the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. But we also know that there is a future fulfillment as well. When you read the book of Isaiah, the same thing as you see there's near fulfillment that is spoken of. The prophets would speak about them, the God's people going off into captivity, not once, but also the Bible speaks of it twice. And that is Jesus and the gospel comes along and he would, in this weeping over Jerusalem, in, in the Olivet Discourse, we read about how Jesus said that Jerusalem, that an embankment is going to be built around you and they're going to destroy the city. The city is going to be trampled on the f- underfoot until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. You're going to be scattered to all the nations. So the Bible speaks of not only coming back from one captivity, but two captivities. And we saw that they would come back as a nation in 1948 after being out of the land for 2,000 years. My point is this. we got to put our thinking caps on a little bit. And we know that as Daniel's prophesying, it's all future. But much of it has been fulfilled, and it's been fulfilled to the letter. And I think about how the near fulfillments have come to pass, just as the Bible said it would. And Daniel, you remember when he ended giving the interpretation of the dream in chapter 2, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, that the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. In other words, it is going to come to pass. And as we look back and we see how much of it has been fulfilled, just as Jesus said, he said every, or Daniel said, but Jesus said that every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled, that we can be certain that that which is yet future, listen, concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ and the events that surround that and point to that, that those prophecies are going to be fulfilled as well. That's what is so incredible about Bible prophecy. And we know that as John, he was told on the island of Patmos, as he received the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that John was told, write these things down that must shortly come to pass. Not that it might be or it could be or it's a possibility. These things are going to come to pass, every dot and tittle being fulfilled. Now, as we have confidence that what is yet ahead that we'll be talking about over the next several weeks as we see the events surrounding the tribulation period, the coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, that we know that some of these prophecies can be heavy and speak of very difficult days ahead. And I find it interesting, or at least intriguing, that Daniel, he was more troubled by these visions than being thrown into the lion's den are being threatened to be chopped up into little pieces by King Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to remind us of something, and I want to preface before we get into this section of the book of Daniel, that we can, as we read these things, there are difficult days that are ahead. He's going to be speaking of a period that's Daniel's 70th week. And Jesus said of that period that it will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And as we consider it, as we go through these things, we can be troubled in the sense where everything is headed. We can be troubled in the sense that we have people that we care about and love uh, that don't know Christ. And what lies ahead? We don't know when the coming of the Lord is, the rapture of the church. We know that after that is the tribulation period. I believe that we're getting closer to the return of the Lord, that he's going to come, what is called the blessed hope for his church. But we don't know the day or the hour. 
But once that happens, that we do know when the tribulation is going to start, and Daniel's going to tell us that when the Antichrist comes on the scene and he makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2 tells us the rider on the white horse. And for seven years, there'll be tribulation. So those who are left behind, we get concerned about, we wonder about. Even as Jeremiah, think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he is warning the people, listen, turn to the Lord. Come to God. Repent of your sins. And if you don't, there's going to be death and devastation and destruction like you've never seen before. And when it happened in 586 B.C., Jeremiah, speaking of it, said that summer's over. The harvest is in. And we're not saved. And so we pray for those who we know and love and care for that are linked to us in our lives, that we would be a witness to them, that God would open up their, their hearts and their spiritual eyes to the gospel message. And I want, to know, I want you to know this, that as we go through prophecy, it's not to scare you. It's not to freak everybody out. It is to prepare us, to make us understand this, that there is a blessed hope that is before us. And I am very grateful that I, we look at things that are going on, that I can have a peace in my heart and be comforted knowing that it's all going to culminate into a wonderful, glorious future for us who are believers and that we belong to a kingdom that will be established forever. And as we look at prophecy, is to reveal Jesus Christ to a greater degree to you and to me. And if we miss that, then we're going to miss the heart of prophecy. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Daniel called the forerunner to the book of Revelation. The apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ is what revelation means. It reveals him to a greater degree that we can understand this. Even as John was exiled to the island of Patmos and he's writing the prophecies down that we know that John would come back to a church that had gone through great persecution in the first century there that many Christians were killed during that time. And they needed to know that the Lord was still on the throne, that he's in control, and that his kingdom is going to come and be established. And I need to know that in the day in which we're living in. I need to know that, and so do you. So it's to bring us comfort. Jesus in John chapter 14, the disciples are, are confused. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus would give some words of comfort as he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He says, Don't be troubled. So we study these things so that the Lord's revealed to us to a greater degree to know that he's on the throne, that he's in control, that his kingdom is coming, and not to scare us, but to prepare us. What manner of men ought we to be, as the apostle would write in the New Testament, the apostle Peter and, and Paul would write, that since our salvation is so near than we first believe, how to live in a godly manner for Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to have our lives be purified, as John would write, that he who has this hope purifies himself. If I really believe that the Lord, whom I love, who died for me, that perhaps, we don't know the day or the hour, that perhaps maybe today he can come back for me, come back for the church, and tomorrow isn't promised to me anyhow. I am not going to live after the world because the world's going to come to a disastrous end. 
I want to live for the kingdom. I want to live for Christ. Amen? Because what I do for Christ, that's what's going to last and be rewarded. And I want to live for him because of the blessed hope and eternal life that I have in him. So it's not to, to trouble us, but to bring comfort to us. So let's begin to look at chapter 7 as we read in verse 1. Then in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts, or that is the sum of them. So in the first year of Belshazzar, would put this several years before what we read about in chapter 5, when Belshazzar was killed and Babylon fell to Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel, not only an interpreter of dreams, but he himself received visions and dreams from the Lord. And as we look at this chapter here, historically and chronologically, is taking place between chapter 4, remember, at the end of, of Nebuchadnezzar's life, that he goes insane for seven years. And then as he goes insane, he comes out of that insanity, and then he writes his testimony, how he comes to know the true and the living God. So it's between that time and then chapter 5. Daniel here is about 65 years of age. He's been in captivity for about 50 years. And as Daniel is on his bed, it is nighttime, and he writes down this dream, this vision, the sum of it. So keep in mind that Daniel was not in the public eye directly at this time ministering with Belshazzar. Because chapter 5, remember, Belshazzar, he was in power for about 17 years, 15, 17 years. And they brought Daniel out to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And Belshazzar says, I've heard about you. You know, you serve my grandfather. But Daniel, even though he wasn't there directly ministering to Belshazzar during that time, God was still using him. Uh, God was, you know, uh, ministering through Daniel. And one of the ways is through this vision. As we read in verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So the great sea is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. And the scriptures seem to indicate that the sea speaks of Gentile nations. Uh, there are these four beasts uh, that come out of the sea. So we're going to be speaking about four empires that are mentioned here and we're going to talk about what does that mean that are coming out of the sea again gentile nations isaiah chapter 17 woe to the multitude of many nations who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters john when he was writing the book of revelation in chapter 13 of the book of revelation i saw a beast in that that word beast is a title for the Antichrist. Just as we're going to see another title that is given to him, here in this chapter, he's called the Little Horn. When you go through the scriptures, when we speak of the Antichrist, as most of you know, that the Antichrist is going to be a future leader that will come on the scene. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to be a religious leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be an economic leader that the world's going to turn to. And in this chapter, we see very clearly that the world turns to him, considers him speaking great things, and is going to begin to trust in him, even as he will proclaim himself as God in the middle of the tribulation period. So all these things that we will talk about specifically, I believe 33 titles in the Old Testament are given to the Antichrist 
13 in the New Testament. He's called the, the lawless one, the son of perdition, uh, the Antichrist John calls him. All these different titles here in chapter 13 of Revelation, he's called the beast. And as you look at that, the beast, he comes out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. And so we read here that Daniel sees these four beasts. And as we go through this, each beast is different. They're not sea creatures, but Daniel writing the vision is going to talk about, some scholars believe, correlating it with the four empires that we read about in Daniel chapter 2. There is also another interpretation that we'll be looking at that I think you'll find it to be interesting. But I do want to say this, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he sees man's empires in his dream, in chapter 2, this image of a man made of gold and silver, silver and precious metals, metals that are desirable and valuable and impressive to man, he's looking at it from man's perspective. Daniel here, as he looks at these Gentile nations or kingdoms that are being mentioned here, I think he's looking at it more from God's perspective. And that is that they're beastly, they're dreadful. So let's begin to look at this uh, as he sees these four beasts and, and what it speaks of as we continue here. Again, four beasts, they're great beasts that come out of the great sea. And as we read here in verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And then in verse 7, And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different than all the beasts that were before it. Take note of that. And then it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking pompous words. Now, as I mentioned, that many scholars, Dr. John Wovode, others that you may read, that they correlate these four beasts with the four kingdoms that are spoken of in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. And I have no problem with that. Matter of fact, I've taught it that way. But I also have read some other scholars that look at this, and we'll talk about this in another perspective, and that is, is that they believe that these are contemporaries that will be in existence in the tribulation period. And I'll tell you why they believe that. Listen, when it comes to Bible prophecy, when it comes to symbols and imagery and all of that, you can interpret a passage to death to mean all kinds of things. So we want to be wise and we want to be careful. And I know that Daniel, as we read this chapter, keep in mind there's an emphasis here. And the emphasis is 
these ten horns, this fourth beast that he's interested in, that's dreadful, that, that is, he's troubled by, and the little horn, speaking pompous words, and then the other emphasis is the Ancient of Days, the vision that he sees, and one like the Son of Man coming, that he will establish his kingdom. So that's the emphasis that we see here in this chapter. But as I said, many scholars correlate these four beasts with the four kingdoms that are spoken of there in chapter 2. Verse 1, the first beast, is like a lion. It correlates with the head of gold in chapter 2, which is the Babylonian Empire. The lion speaks of power and strength, and that was the Babylonian Empire. The lion was the symbol of Babylon and found near, you know, on the gates there guarding the king of Babylon, the royal palace. The wings were plucked off, made to stand on two feet like a man, was lifted up from the earth, and a man's heart was given to it. Is that speaking about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? In chapter 4, you see that you're going to, you know, be given a, a heart of a beast, but he would come out of that insanity back to the heart of a man. Uh, some say that's what it correlates to. And then the second beast, like a bear, that correlates with the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2, the Medo-Persian Empire. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. Now, if you've ever gone to, up, for example, up to Yellowstone, and you've watched the grizzly bear, when they walk, they're very powerful animals, but also they kind of lumber along. They're very fast. I've seen them run, um, and they're, they're quick, but... When they walk, they kind of lumber, you know, and that's what some say here, that the Medo-Persian Empire achieved their domination through brute strength. They would have a massive army, we know historically, an army of over two million soldiers, which was unheard of in ancient times, and they kind of lumbered along and overwhelmed their enemy, eating and devouring much flesh, and the three ribs in its mouth probably represents uh, their rise to power as they chewed up the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Lydians. Then you have verse 6, the third beast was like a leopard. Uh, the leopard, the beast, uh, corresponds with the belly and thigh of bronze, the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, the leopard is the fastest land animal on earth. They lie in wait for their prey and then chase them down and pounce on them. And it was with, we know historically, the swiftness of Alexander's army that they conquered the whole world. The four wings on its back illustrates a swiftness that goes far beyond a natural ability. Now, in the Battle of Thermopolis, Alexander's relatively small army defeated the much larger, you know, slower Medo-Persian army. Alexander would strike at tremendous speed. They couldn't predict where he was going to strike next. The four heads here and dominion given to it speaks of, they say, four generals that would take over after Alexander's death. And we know that took place. He, he divided the kingdom up into four parts, four generals. And we will see that Daniel is going to focus on two of them when we get to chapter 8 and chapter 11. And then the fourth beast in verses 7 and 8. The fourth beast, as we're going to see that Daniel's going to focus on, pays much attention to, is troubled by this fourth beast. Now, what is interesting is that Daniel does not say what kind of beast it is or what animal it is. He just describes the beast. He says the beast is dreadful, it's terrible, it's strong, it's teeth of iron, trampling everything that is in its way, and it has ten horns. And we do know this, I think we can say this in confidence, 
that the ten horns that we're going to be told later in the chapter represent ten kings, that it correlates with the ten toes of chapter 2. Remember the legs of iron spoke of the Roman Empire, and then there was an extension. There was the feet with ten toes of iron mingled with clay, and the kingdom partly strong and partly brittle. It's going to be divided. And we do know that chapter 2 of Daniel very specifically says that the ten toes are kings that will be in existence when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. The rock hits the image, uh, man's kingdoms come and crumble and then the rock grows which represents the kingdom of God that will always be established so we know that the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2 correlate with the ten horns here of this fourth beast that is being told to us as we look at it and then Daniel gives us some additional information he says among the ten horns there's a little horn that rose up among them and we're told that he's speaking pompous words it might be in your translation, great things. Daniel is going to repeat that this one that is the little horn that is going to be a world leader is going to be a great orator. He speaks blasphemous things concerning the true and the living God, the truth of God's word. He's going to come on the scene and he's going to desire to be worshiped himself. We'll talk about that more specifically halfway through the tribulation period. But to the world, he speaks very great things. The world's going to be enamored with him. It's going to be a leader like has never been seen before since Jesus Christ. So here is this one that he takes note of. And as we see this, that there are those, again, with the interpretation that these are the kingdoms that correlate up to this revived Roman Empire that will be on the scene in the latter days. But there are other scholars that take note in verse 7. Remember I said to him that all these beasts, this fourth beast was different than the other beasts that were before it. Now keep in mind this fourth beast, dreadful, different, that's uh, going to uh, really dominate these other three that are before it is what it seems to be indicated to us because this, as it's written, this section of Daniel in Aramaic, when we go back to chapter 8, it's back to Hebrews. And that word before means to be in the presence in front of. It means that the other three were before the fourth beast. And it does not mean a chronological order or a succession of order or a sequence of order. But rather, is it what's being told to us that these are contemporaries? That these are empires that are going to be on the scene in the tribulation period? Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel was in the presence of the king. And that word, it means uh, before the king. Uh, same word as in Aramaic. Verse 7. You can look this up, verse 10, as we continue seeing that word before being used. Uh, speaking of the throne of God, a fiery stream came forth from before him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That is in his presence. You can jot down, take note of verse 13, where it says that they brought him before him. Again, speaking of before him in his presence. Verse 20, the ten horns on its head, the other horn that comes up before which three fell, speaking of in his presence. So the language seems to demand to us 
that it's not just speaking of chronological order like in chapter 2, but these stood presently at this time before the fourth beast, which is interesting. So if that is the case in what is being told to us, it means that these first three beasts will be present, as I mentioned in the tribulation period, will be subject to the fourth beast. So who are these first three beasts? Listen, I don't want to be dogmatic, but it very well could be what we even see today in the last eight kingdoms. Now, when it comes to Babylon, we can be told that the symbol for Babylon was winged lions. Uh, the Ishkar gates, when they excavated it, they saw images of uh, lions that were all throughout that gate and on the walls, but they weren't winged. They weren't eagles' wings. That didn't come till later when Persia came on the scene. Uh, we read in verse 4 that here this image had eagle's wings and it stood on two feet like a man. Interesting, if we are looking at contemporaries in the last days, standing before this fourth beast, ruled by the little horn, I can't help but think about Great Britain. Because one of the symbols of the monarchy of Britain is, interesting, a lion standing on two feet. Eagle's wings that were plucked. Could it be a reference to Great Britain and her allies, America? Now, one of the things that people ask me in Bible prophecy, I think one of the questions lately, more than any other question, is where is America in Bible prophecy? And, and it's kind of vague. Maybe there's a reference in chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel when it talks about the, the major war that will take place, a confederation of nations that will come against Israel, and then there's another confederation of nations that are protesting it, Tarshish and our young lions. Could that be a reference to America? Uh, there's a suggestion there. Here, could this be a reference to Britain and America uh, in the last days that are standing before this fourth beast? Uh, if we're seeing this as contemporary powers, the second is like a bear. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of Russia. And listen, I'm not being dogmatic, and I didn't come up with this on my own, okay? I'm not smart enough to do that. But as you read the commentaries, Dr. Henry Morris, a great scientist and Bible scholar, uh, adhered to the inerrancy of Scripture, has a study Bible that maybe perhaps some of you have. Sir Robert Anderson in the late 1800s, an intelligence officer and theologian. Maybe some of you have read his book, The Coming Prince. He, he died of the Spanish flu. They see these beasts and other scholars as being contemporaries all present in the last days before this fourth beast. The bear, could it be speaking of Russia? Now, Persia had never been pictured as a bear. And, and so we look at this and we think, well, what about the three ribs? If this is a temporary power, if this is speaking of Russia and her allies, what are the three ribs? I don't know. Could it be Ukraine? Could it be that... They're going to expand their, into Europe somehow or to other nations? I, I, I don't know. What does it mean for the timing of Ezekiel 38 and 39? When Gog and Magog, and we identify Gog as a title, and Magog as Russia, when they come into the north along with Persia, that's Iran and Turkey, those alliances are all ready to go. We see stage-setting events that it could be the next major war in the Middle East. 
that we know that God's going to destroy the armies of Persia and, and you know, Turkey and, and Gog or Magog, that is Russia. What does it mean for that? It's interesting. What is the time of Ezekiel 38? There's a debate on all that. We've gone over that. It devours here. This bear rises, devour much flesh, the people being killed. We know that Putin has, you know, over and over again, warning and, and given the threat using tactical nuclear weapons. And some believe that he will eventually use them. It is suggested very clearly, and it seems to indicate to us, that in that, you know, battle of Ezekiel 38 that weapons of mass destruction are going to be used. It's very clear, I think, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Just something for you to ponder and think about as you lie in bed tonight. (laughs) But whatever they do, they devour much. The third, like a leper. Never was Alexander the Great likened to a leopard that we know of in history. And on the back was the wings and foreheads. Now, uh, we, we like to take this and say that we know that, as I mentioned, that Alexander did pass his empire on when he died, when he was 33, onto his four generals. But in chapter 2, keep in mind, remember, Greek is portrayed as having only one head. And, and here the image goes from legs here, chapter 2, the legs of Rome, doesn't speak of Rome. It just goes right to this revived Roman Empire, the ten horns and the beasts. The little horns speak in blasphemous words. So who is the leper? Well, again, some have suggested perhaps it could be China and the Eastern Alliance, uh, Far Eastern nations coming together. Some have suggested that it's uh, Muslim nations coming together. I don't really hold to that view. Um, because I think Ezekiel 38 is going to take care of that. Some have suggested perhaps Africa, northern Africa in particular. But these beasts are before the fourth beast in the last days. Now one more thought, Revelation chapter 13. And here in the tribulation period, as we read about the Antichrist, let me read it to you. The imagery that we see in chapter 7 are mentioned here in chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So you see the ten horns that are mentioned there, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw, that speaking of the Antichrist, was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and the mouth like the mouth of a lion. Same thing that's mentioned in chapter 7. The dragon gave him power, his throne, and great authority. In other words, the Antichrist is going to be directly influenced by Satan himself. So what does it mean for you and for me today? I want you to know this, that the Lord is on the throne. It reminds me, number one, to be praying for our nation. Be praying for our nation. Because that is the hope of our nation, is the gospel, and the spiritual awakening, and spiritual revival. And number two is we see the nations play a huge role in the last days. Why do the nations plot a vain thing? Why do they rage? That we are going to see that Israel is going to be the epicenter of end time prophecy. That Daniel makes that very, very clear. And then the other nations that play a role in that this revived Roman Empire, it seems like that as they come out of Europe, that they are going to grow stronger. So some Things are going to happen 
to where this revived Roman Empire as we get closer to the return of the Lord into the tribulation period, that they're going to come to the forefront. So interesting things that we see among the nations that we'll talk more specifically as we continue here through this chapter and what's going to take place in this leader that will come on the scene that the world's going to turn to, a false Christ. That's what Antichrist means, not only false, but it comes instead of Christ. And he's going to set himself up as being worshipped. And we're going to see that the world's going to be deceived into worshipping him. That's why it's so important that we know the word of God. That we look to him. And these things are set before us. So we can be wise and the faithful servant. And that we can be sober and vigilant. You and I, the book of Ezekiel says, we're to be watchmen on the wall. So be the watchman on the wall. As we see these things, rejoice, Jesus said, when you begin to see them come to pass and look up for your redemption draws near. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, these few verses that we went over. And, Lord, there was a lot here. And, and um, Lord, I know that sometimes we can think it's not important or it's, it's not valuable for us, but it, it is. We want to be ones that we continue to just be watching and sober and vigilant in the things that are before us. And Lord, these things will be fulfilled. I thank you that we can come and, and Lord, see the, the, what is really a priority for us. And that is that the Son of Man is going to come. And we're going to come with him. Be a part of this kingdom that will last forever. And I do want to pray for anyone who is here, if you're not right with God, that is, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. As I read from John chapter 14, he said, Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That he would say right after that, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That we know that he's the one that died for our sins and rose again and conquered sin and death. And the Bible says for you to repent, that is, quit going the direction you're going and turn to Jesus. He is your salvation, and the invitation is for you to come, to believe in him, to believe on him, what he did for you on Calvary's cross, the Son of God who died for your sins because the wages of sin is death. And he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death, and he loves you. And he wants you to come to him, surrender your life to him, to have a new beginning, the promise of eternal life, and to belong to a kingdom that will be established forever. You can do that right now. Sincerely in your heart, you can pray, Jesus, I come to you. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me and you rose again from the grave. You're alive. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for bringing me into relationship with the loving Father that I can cry out, Abba, Father. I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. For all of us that are here as we go our way, may we be ones that light to others, a message of hope to give to others. Keep our eyes on you, Lord. And Lord, to be comforted, to know that we belong to a kingdom that will last and be established forever. 
Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name.